In this episode, Tom Fentzel, CFO at PriceFX, shares his insights into the challenges of expanding into the US market, the key financial metrics he uses to drive growth and efficiency, and how technology is helping his company to drive data-driven decisions. Hi, I'm Rob, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Tom, what is PriceFX? Can you tell people who might not know what PriceFX is? Sure. PriceFX is a uh, software company, a SaaS, uh, cloud-based pricing software company to be specific. Pricing is a, is a discipline that is mostly relevant for larger organizations where they need to manage a certain amount of complexity. The complexity comes in sort of three forms, and we try to address all three of them with our products. The one is sort of managing complexity of prices themselves, where you know you operate with large amounts of data, and you need to make sure that that the kinds of insights or strategies that companies have in setting their prices are actually without errors and, and timely fashion translated into into setting prices for different channels, different regions, and so forth. The second complexity comes uh, in the area of repricing quickly. That often comes also with the with the with the element of price optimization, where you try to kind of play with the scenarios and so forth. And there's uh, something called pricing science as, as a sort of part of that offering. And the last piece is managing the workflow within an organization. This refers to the the area of quoting or quote setting, sometimes uh, in the industry referred to as CPQ, configure price quote. And essentially what that is to just to explain is price setting is typically even in a large organization, a centralized function. When a small number of people somewhere in the headquarters sort of sets the price for the whole organization. But what happens then is salespeople in the field may have the ability to quote what a price for certain combination of products or services might be. And obviously they have a they have ability to manipulate the price, but you want to restrict that complete freedom with some sort of rules. And of course, historically this is something that has been done sort of the pre-digital era that would be uh, a lot of restrictions and, you know, slow approvals and so forth. Nowadays, you can do this practically in real time. And, and that's where CPQ comes in place as well. So that's sort of the, that's the nature of how the industry operates. We're one of the players and we offer all these three functions. You mentioned it's a SaaS solution and a SaaS company. And so could you give us a sense of the size of the organization when you joined PriceFX? When I joined in late 2017, we were about 70 people. We are now close to 400. And the finance function, what, what did that look at the time when you, when you joined and, and how have you grown it from what it was at the time you joined to how it looks today? When I joined, we were obviously a relatively small team, but we already were at that time a fairly complex business in a sense that originally we were German company, but we operate in Europe also in, or at that time we're operating also in the Czech Republic and Switzerland. We had a U.S. subsidiary that this uh, source of a lot of growth and we had a subsidiary in Australia. So we were operating in a bunch of different jurisdictions, different currencies, different uh, accounting systems and so forth. So, so that was sort of the first thing that kind of hit me when, when, I, when I got in. Because when I joined, the company was still relatively small and, you know, limited resources. We were doing all of the accounting functions outside. We had outside outsourced vendors, separate vendors in each country. It was kind of hard to aggregate things. 
my predecessor has decided to implement NetSuite, but when I when I got in, NetSuite wasn't uh, still used for accounting. So one of my first moves after I came on board was to hire a head of accounting and basically give him as the first task within the first year of being there to bring all the accounting, which is which was done, which was outsourced, to bring it in-house and start using NetSuite, not just as a reporting tool, but as an actual bookkeeping tool. And we've done that at the end of 2018. And since then, we've been using that as, a, as, as our core ERP. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the, on the team structure? You, you mentioned you brought in a head of accounting. And then from then, what other functions did you, did you build out? When I was being recruited, I was uh, offered a position of a CFO. But on my first day on the job, our CEO came to me and he said, well, Tom, you seem like a capable guy. Would you mind if I also threw the rest of operations your way? And so I, I got HR and, and legal. Legal wasn't even really an existing function at the time, but in, in a sense, legal as well. So I got a bunch of an office operations, IT and what have you kind of all fell into my lap. Over the past three years or so, I have directly and indirectly grown the organization from about less than 10 people to about 30. But at the same time, what we did, and I don't have 30 people reporting to me now, because what we did is as some of these functions were maturing, we moved them out of what is still viewed that time confusingly as finance. So we moved out of finance and they are sort of separate. So we have a chief legal officer now who I hired originally, and, and but he's now separately reporting to the CEO. And we have a head of HR who now is also reporting to CEO. So I bring people on, but I also shed the functions uh, partially to respond to the fact that as the organization gets bigger, you need more specialization and you need sort of more of the verticals to to keep things efficient. So, so that's what we've been doing. And you also mentioned that when you joined, the company was already international, headquartered in Germany with operations in the Czech Republic, which is where you're from, and also uh, Brisbane. The last location is Chicago in the US and Switzerland too. So could you give some insight into that international expansion strategy? So what, what was driving that approach to move into these specific markets? It's a mix of um, sort of outward looking uh, um, sort of uh, reasons where obviously the U.S. Uh, expansion was clearly driven by that's where sort of the software market is the largest. And particularly in our in our sector in, in pricing, it's also the most uh, mature. So uh, there's most readily sort of customers available and willing to to invest into that kind of solution. Similarly for Australia, Australia is not necessarily or APAC is not necessarily the most obvious market, but we, we had a customer, a large customer that kind of wanted us there. And, and we then used that base. And this is sort of my second part of why we operate this way is that insofar as we are selling to customers that are large international companies, they do like the fact that we're capable of offering 24-7 support. So we have now people based in every time zone around the globe and capable of covering every time zone around the globe. So that was important. So the Australian operation is not just to sell in Australia or in sort of the APAC region, but is also to support non-APAC customers operating in there. And the third sort of element here is the sort of European operation where the Czech Republic compared to 
Germany is obviously a lot cheaper to both hire back office uh, staff, but uh, also importantly for us is the ability to hire very qualified, but still somewhat cheaper engineers and for our R&D and, and development. So, so it's kind of the nearshoring near strategy what was, what was behind the growth in the Czech Republic. And you touched upon some of the... F- challenges from a finance perspective related to that international expansion you you mentioned currency and oh, i hate it okay <laughs> <laughs> understandably jokes aside right there is often discussion in the sort of vc the startup space uh, comparing american companies and european companies and i think that this is really crux of the problem people often talk about how you know, American business culture is better and all that. And yeah, that's true to some extent. But I think that the big difference is that you can grow to a pretty significant scale in the United States as a startup without ever acquiring another language, changing jurisdiction, changing currency, any of that. Within Europe, I would say the only two markets which sort of approach that in any sense and even that in a much smaller scale would be the UK where you guys are and 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 maybe Germany if you're sort of specialized in some areas any other countries sort of too small as a sort of a target for your customers to really allow you to grow big and so sooner or later if you want to grow you have to get out of the borders and and that often requires setting up a new jurisdiction as I as I mentioned sort of having new currency to to deal with new accounting systems and so forth. The other thing, which is um, also very frustrating for a company of our size, is banking services, right? I mean, even companies that banks that present themselves as international banks, there is nothing like a truly international bank. They're all operators as uh, locally chartered banks. And the regulation these days, as, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, is, is onerous to say the least. I'm not going to name names, but banking services is one of the big challenges that we get to deal with in our growth as we're trying to kind of operate in all these different, all these different jurisdictions. You obviously, when you're moving into the US, there must be some lessons that you, you've learned along the way that you would be able to provide as insights and guidance for any other CFO finance leader who's out there faced with a challenge or a similar challenge, or the business might be considering that that move, whether it be into the US or other countries. But, but yeah, what, what advice or lessons have you learned that you would pass on from that move into the US? There's a couple of things here. I think that they're all, all important. So uh, I start from maybe the top, and this is what we talked about a minute ago. I think if you're a software company, particularly, and not just B2B, B2C2, you will want to be in the US, right? So, so you know, whatever discussion you're having as a, as a management team, it shouldn't be if, should we do this or not, but it's more like, how do we do it, right? So, so I think that that's a, that's a first piece of advice. The second thing is that as a European company, you need to kind of accept that the U.S. market is far, physically far, time zones away, that affects the way you integrate and and sort of you cooperate across that distance uh, in time and space. Despite the fact that there isn't a startup out there that doesn't have competency in English and therefore you don't really have to like acquire a completely new language, the culture is different. I'm Czech, but I lived here before coming here with PriceFX a year and a half ago. I lived here before for seven years. My wife is American. So I've, I've, I've spent a significant amount of my life 
here in the US and and I believe that I understand the culture quite well but and I appreciate it I appreciate the European culture and I appreciate that they are different <laughs> and we could have a whole another podcast about the interesting elements of the different cultures but the going back to business you need to reflect on that you know you have to be mindful of how you communicate to people in different cultures and so forth so I think that's the second element and the third one that's more of a personal view i think other people have done it differently but i've been very consistent from the start that we should operate as one company so there has been repeated calls for sort of setting up a us sort of operations and have like two different likes and this is a subjective point of view but i'm against that and and i've been sort of pushing that on our company from from the start and we're still treating the whole company as a as, as one company we don't we obviously report separately sales in the different regions and so forth but in terms of how the organization is structured as it grows it's still organized as as one business with different functions but each function is tasked to operate globally and each head of function where they sit in some of them sit in Europe some of them sit in the US but each as they are hired or tasked with the heading the function is being explained and being told that they need to head a global function wherever they sit what would be in your eyes therefore the negative downsides if there was that move towards breaking things and and having more of an a, a US and a European i think that there's just two main reasons and there may be more but there are two that kind of stand out the first one is that, and we've, we've had near misses, or we had so we, we touched on that. We had some experiences that were kind of related to that. It tends to once you do it, once you acknowledge it and sort of organizationally acknowledge it, it tends to deepen the the differences. So by telling people, no, you are one team and you have to cooperate, they'll figure it out. They'll they'll figure out the cultural nuances. The moment you you say, no, 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 we will treat you as two different groups. Well, guess what? The in-group, out-group dynamics uh, tends to, you know, make things worse, not better. So that's one, that's probably the big reason. And the other is, um, is efficiency. We're still a relatively small company. I'm asking all my colleagues in the different departments to think about how best to sort of set up each of the different functions and to do it twice and then have maybe even a a corporate overhead on top of that is just very inefficient. And going back to just what you were saying about the the challenges of time and space as one of one of the challenges to solve for moving into the US, how did you and how did PriceFX solve for that? What were what were the decisions that you took to say, okay, this is this is how we'll address the time and space difficulty or, or, or issue? One of the ways in which is my moving here, I also, so the kind of decision on the exact level that we, we need at least part of the exact team to be based here, regardless of who the people are. And, you know, I happen to be a good candidate since my prior experience here and, and my affinity for, or kind of roots here. But that was one, one way to do it. I definitely think that you, you want to have both parts represented well. So that's one thing. And the other is, Video conferencing that uh, was imposed on all of us with uh, with COVID and the travel restrictions has, to some extent, became e- easier. Is that you just need to forget the time zones. You just need to <laughs> talk together, right? So, so we have calls which are scheduled always to be, you know, early morning in in Chicago and and sort of middle of the day in Europe. We sometimes have all company calls which are scheduled 
so that they are late night in in Brisbane, but you know everyone is expected to participate. So I think that kind of acknowledging that yes, it's hard, but it's possible. I think it's the second thing. Prior to COVID. We were experimenting, and I think we still would go back to that if once COVID sort of restrictions are lifted, traveling, right? You, you just need to meet each other and, and spend time together. But I, I, I would say that like we're we're connected with the business we're doing and, and with, uh, with all sorts of other things. So I think that you can do it. It's just, I think you need to acknowledge that the differences are there and you need to be sensitive to it and work to overcome that. It's a massive country, obviously, but with big regional differences from the perspective of what sorts of businesses are located where. Obviously, the East Coast is much more financially financial services centric, pharmaceutical centric, and the West Coast is predominantly tech, just to, you know as, as broad broad brushstrokes. We have people both on the sales side and on the customer service side across the whole country. So our, technically our office, U.S. office is based in Chicago, which I would say a lot of our customers actually are also in the Midwest. So that was one of the reasons why we chose Chicago. But no, you need to kind of ask the whole, whole country and absolutely agree with you. It's a continent worth of country. So yes. And supporting the growth of, of PriceFX has been obviously venture backed and PriceFX has gone through a number of raises. With those raises comes the, the need to drive sort of growth and efficiency or efficient growth, let's say. How do you think about driving efficient growth uh, PriceFX? Being a SaaS company, there are some fairly standard metrics. I say fairly standard, meaning different companies, different investors calculate them slightly differently, but the basics are universal. In terms of the KPIs, the one that we probably look first, not only, but first is obviously growth in ARR, the annual recurring revenue. And then insofar as, as you said rightly about efficiency, what we compare it to is the cost of acquisition. And, you know, whether you then talk about self-sufficiency, whether you talk about payback, um, personally, I, I tend to look more on the, the, the payback metric. That's something which we follow. We've been on and off playing with the, I believe it's Bessemer Ventures who came with. There's an indicator that, that, that they use. And then the other indicator that I like is the uh, rule of 40 which is uh, essentially you take the difference between your percentage growth in, in ARR and your cash flow or EBITDA margin. And again, something that I find very elegant in a sense, that it's a simple metric that you can easily kind of communicate to people, hey, I don't need to grow faster or we need to burn a little bit less cash than what we're doing to get into some good place. And LTV, is that also a, an indicator that you look at, a lifetime value? Yes, we've started recently. We haven't historically, one of the reasons why we historically haven't spent too much time on LTV is we have a very low churn. And that's obviously something I'm proud of, but it's also to some extent specific to the segment where we operate and the type of product that we have. It's, it's fairly sticky by its nature. Very few companies decide to rip off their pricing system once they implement it. So we don't really know what our life is. Right. We are sub 5% churn, right? So we're like three and a half percent churn. So if you do the math, you know, it's, whether it's 20 years or whether it's, you know, 30 years, we may not be here by the time the customers are supposed to churn. So in that sense, the, the life part of the LTV is, is kind of hard to determine. I've seen metrics or we've been experimenting with metrics where you just kind of arbitrarily put five there, as in there was something magic about five. I don't 
I don't see it, but you could certainly do it. And then you can derive something from it. But the proper or theoretically proper way of doing LTV then would account for, you know, upsell. And, and we're not quite sure yet because, again, the timescales of the implementation and the lifetime of the customer is so long. And compared to where we are, we don't, we can't reliably say, how many and how much the customers will upsell over how long of a time. So it's still kind of speculative to say what the ultimate lifetime value is. And on a practical basis, I think that the payback method, which tells you, hey, you should watch how long it will take you to repay what you spend on getting the customer, focuses the minds and, and doesn't suffer from some of these uh, more academic or theoretical parameters. Yeah. And then and, and for that payback, do you have a, a number of months that you look to stick to? Yes. So our target is it's about a year and a half or so that would be what 18 months or less. We're not quite there yet. It's an evolving process as the uh, go-to-market organizations mature and, and marketing plays its role as part of that. Were these metrics in place when you joined or did you have to establish them within the business? Some of the things like what is the ARR is, is something that the investors wanted to know even in the Series A. I mean, when I joined or shortly before I joined, there wasn't really a sales and marketing organization to speak of. So it's kind of hard to do some of these metrics on that. And and of course, scaling is non-linear, non-linear in a sense that you know, you do the math differently if you have one salesperson versus if you have five or 20 or whatever, you know, 30 and so forth. So, you know, it wasn't in place. We, we've implemented it. And to your point about fundraising and how this plays a role here, I joined after Series A, but shortly after I joined, we did a bridge financing with the original Series A investors. We then did Series B in 2018, fall of 2018, followed by a, an extension to that with the same investors in 2019, and then ultimately the Series C in last year, 2020. You can see going through those, those kind of steps in the fundraising, the growing demand on sophistication and, and sort of precision and, and, and sort of analytical insight. So for sure, folks should not be shell-shocked and kind of you have some time, right? So if, depending where you are in your growth trajectory, you have some time, but yes, it will come and the finance function is, is critical in enabling that. And how often do you look at these metrics? Is it on a daily basis, a weekly? What, what sort of rhythm do you have to, to measure this performance and, and, and discuss it and look for ways to improve? So of course I, I look at them daily, but not daily as in as in I expect them to move daily. So our basic rhythm is a month. We've experimented with all sorts of other sort of cycles, but realistically, given the type of business we're in, I think month is a pretty pretty good frequency, and we do a quarterly bigger reviews, sort of reflection, kind of look back and look forward. But monthly is what we would, would look at. Maybe one comment, this is somewhat technical, but maybe relevant for some of your listeners. The big discussion often is, so for some of these metrics, how do you calculate them, right? Do you calculate them on a quarterly basis? So you look at quarterly spend and quarterly growth in ARR, say, or monthly. Monthly tends to be very short, right? So what my answer, and again, like this is sort of a subjective preference, but what has worked well for us is... Uh, monthly update of uh, 12 months uh, trailing numbers because insofar as and our business is certainly seasonal so insofar as your business is seasonal you need the 12 months 
And you don't want to obviously wait for the end of the year. So you want to do it every month, but you do it monthly on a trailing 12 months basis and, and sort of looking at the numbers as they evolve over time. Yes, you have the downside that they maybe don't respond super quickly. That you have to be a you kind of as a, as a, as analytically looking at it, you have to be careful. Like, hey, I, eleven months is still the from the prior period, so you have to be kind of careful how quickly you pick up the signals. But the catching the trends, the underlying trends, it's, it's a very useful way of doing it, and and it worked well for me. And that monthly cadence that you settled on was that also a function of the deal size? The uh, sorry, the not necessarily just the deal size, but also the the length of time it takes to bring deals in. Did that factor into that equation? Our sales cycle is relatively. I mean, it's not super long considering again the enterprise segment, but it is uh, somewhere between six to nine months. So if you want to be relatively close to the numbers and kind of pay attention, it, you have to also realize that things take a while. So yes, monthly is a is a is a decent uh, cadence, and particularly we try to look at quarters, but quarters have the in my view, sort of deceptive quality because they, they sort of suggest like something should happen in that quarter, but just as easily could slip by a couple of weeks and now it's artificial in another quarter. And for my part, I don't, I'd rather look at the longer time horizon and see how things are evolving over time than sort of artificially just look at the three-month period and, and pretend that the life or world started and ended on the first and last day of those three months. So I, I, I'm not a huge, as you can as you can hear, I'm not a huge fan of quarterly reporting per se. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of frequently reporting, but also realize that you need to be looking at a longer time scales. Sounds like getting that balance right is key to really drawing the correct insights from from what what the data is saying. Right. The the one problem with monthly numbers, obviously, is that and that goes back to the lumpiness of the the, the large deals that take a long time. Is that there's very few numbers that on the growth side, particularly, would make sense in month itself. Right. So I keep going back to this trailing periods and so forth. Just month alone is often not, not telling you much because the different the numbers can be quite different month to month. How do you articulate the company's financial strategy? How do you talk about the the financial strategy to folks at, at PriceFX and how would you articulate that? Maybe I would say just to clarify what we're talking about, right? I I don't distinguish financial strategy so much from strategy itself, but insofar as we're talking about how do you express strategy of the company in financial goals or financial terms, absolutely. Growth comes first. I mean, we're still relatively small. We still have a ton of room to grow. So we don't want to forego growth to pursue other objectives. So absolutely growth in ARR is the first metric. But we also should be sensitive to the fact that you don't want to be derailed completely. So what we do is is we also look at profit or efficiency metrics. And we've experimented with different ones, cash burn, EBDA, EBDA margin, gross margin, that's a new one for us in terms of KPI as a company metric. And, and, and I kind of like it. It's to say, we obviously, we have two kinds of revenues. We have subscription revenue and we have uh, services revenue. So specifically, the subscription revenue is the one which that's the source of revenue that as it grows, uh, the recurring revenue. So that's the future basis for profitability, unlike the services which tend to just kind of churn through. So the subscription revenue is something, the subscription revenue margin is something that we uh, are now paying keener focus on, on, on that metric. 
growth and, and some measure of profitability is, is what we look at. And when you think about 2021 and the priorities for this year, what's top of your list? It's not that different from what we were doing before in 2020. I guess the one thing which is still new to all of us is is reflection on 2020. And, and obviously, it's not shocking to say that we were disappointed. Like, I mean, we grew, we had a great year, but it wasn't nearly as great as what we, we were hoping for at the beginning of the year. And I think that folks, not just at PriceFX, but everywhere are, are, are kind of trying to sort of figure out what's ahead of us. So what we're doing now is trying to balance still going for growth. As I said, nothing changes about the fact that we believe that there is tremendous opportunity ahead, but at the same time, reflecting on the on the fact that the environment is still challenging and, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And as always, I mean, it's not necessarily that bad things are happening. It's the uncertainty about what's going to happen next is what kind of throws people off. And what's particularly sort of challenging for us is on an operational side, we're fine. I mean, we're lucky we're a software company. As such, we have not been hit by any of the sort of challenges some other sort of more traditional companies had with COVID and the lockdowns and so forth. So so we're doing fine there. But obviously our customers, a lot of them are rethinking and they face uncertainty in terms of what future beholds for them. And that sometimes takes a focus away from the more longer term investments, such as implementing new software, right? So that's the challenge for enterprise software companies is get your buyers, your customers focused on the benefits that come from digitalization and, and, and sort of efficiency that you can gain and not just be distracted by the near term stresses of which there's plenty of those. Speaking of tech, so digitalization is obviously uh occurring within the finance function as it is across all departments and particularly for the for the finance function can you talk a little bit about your tech stack and 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 what that looks like sure i I already mentioned netsuite so that's our core erp we are using a, a a software for expense management we have recently started using a software for accounts receivable kind of um, visualization and management and even some predictions on real time to pay and so forth. So those are the sort of unique finance systems. As I mentioned, I'm also responsible for our internal IT. So I would say one of the challenges that I don't think is unique to PriceFX, I think it's many other companies in, in our situation. These days, there is so much software out there. And it's all cool, right? I mean, there's no question about it. There's just a ton of good software that can allow you to do more. If you're a small company, do more than what your scale kind of would typically allow. If you're a bigger company, do it more efficiently. So whichever way you're coming from. I think that one of the things that it's sort of underappreciated, I think people will have to will be forced to think more and more as, as, as time goes. And I think CFOs particularly should be the ones uh, kind of keeping a keen eye, eye on this is... I've recently asked our head of IT to show me what are all the systems that we have. And we're a company of almost 400 people, right? He drew a map. If I showed it to you, you wouldn't wouldn't believe, right? So we've acquired over the past approximately year and a half or so just a tremendous number of different systems. And they're all there for a reason, I'm sure. But at some point, you just reach a point of complexity that's that's in of itself obstacle to good hygiene around numbers and data. So actually one of our biggest strategic projects now is uh, 
bringing in a new system. Don't, don't, don't laugh. <laughs> but we are, what we're building is we're basically building a, a on a basis of a Snowflake database. We're using a system where we're going to pull data from all these disparate systems and bring them into one. And uh, we're building a small but mighty uh, data analytics department that will be responsible for making sure that the data points that are looking like they're the same actually are the same. We have different definitions of, you know, ACV or ARR in different parts of the company and different definition of customer and so forth. And it's it's mind boggling. It's obviously logical. You know how that happens, right? Because they're growing up from different functions. But I think that as a... CFO, it is your responsibility to make sure that data, which is clearly one of the sort of hidden resources of every company, is managed well. And and that means centralization and, and consistency and some sort of hygiene around that. I was going to mention data because, yeah, just like there are lots of systems, there's there's a lot of data. And so twin challenges of knowing that the data is trustworthy and telling the truth, as well as deciding on what data to extrapolate and what data to use. I will date myself here, but one of the <laughs> one of the things that I would say, and, and if there are CFOs out there that have that sentiment and you have my support, is I'm old enough to remember before there was digitalization and, and frankly, before there was even Excel, right? And so there is something to be said for, for pen and paper and maybe a calculator, or maybe just do the math in your head. I learned that at school. And I think that that's, uh, it's not the joke, right? It's a, and again, this is where I truly see the CFO role as, a, as the steward of clarity, right? And steward of truth, if you will. I don't want to be too philosophical, but it is what it is. You can't run a company without knowing what's actually going on. Too easy for people to kind of, oh, it's flickering screen in front of me, so that must be true, right? And and ultimately, you need to be able to look at any number, and it doesn't have to be just accounting numbers, right? It's any number, and be able to independently evaluate whether it makes sense, whether it can be possibly true, and source it back to some document or some event that you have knowledge of, right? So I, I, I torment my team by, you know, having to kind of validate numbers against documents, against things that we really know have happened. Why? Because ultimately, you don't want to get lost in the digital space and just kind of, as I said, look at flickering screens, like things need to actually relate to reality. And and sometimes, yes, pen and paper is, is a way to kind of check your thinking and check your, your analysis. Speaking of insights and advice, if you could turn back the clock and when you were just becoming a CFO, what advice would you give or would you have liked to have heard as you became a CFO and you were starting that role? Be humble. <laughs> I, I think that that's a good advice for, for anyone, particularly on a, on, on a younger side. No, I, I would expand on that a little bit. The converse of what I just said, and I meant every word of what I said about this sort of steward of truth and all that. Yes, I, I, I do see the finance function as ultimately the source of reliable source of truth for the business. But what the dark side of, of that approach and attitude is that as finance people, we often only pay attention to how we are right. And we often are right, right? So that's okay. But I think that it's important to to learn, and I wish I learned it earlier, to listen to other people. And as I like to remind my, my friends and colleagues is, 
not listen to them necessarily because you can be wrong and they may be right. And that was obviously a very good reason for that. But I would take it a step further. I would say you need to listen to other people, even when you're right and they're wrong, you still need to listen to them, right? Because you're going to understand why they are saying what they're saying and, and sort of see the world from different perspectives. So I think that this, this tendency to, because we are close to the truth, if you will, <laughs> that we have somehow kind of our perspective, therefore, is always the right perspective. I think that's a dangerous expansion on, on that, what is ultimately a positive thing. So I, I'm totally for empowering finance and kind of making sure that finance folks have the role within the organization to truly be, be not just be encounters, but to really be the source of insight about what's going on. But I think that has to come with being humble and with being willing to listen to other people as well. It sounds like uh, both being humble, but being curious. I didn't mention that because I was born with that. Sorry. Curiosity is, 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 is absolutely, I obviously hire people into my team. People sometimes ask me what I'm looking for when I'm hiring people. And there's really only two or three things that I look for, right? Yes, there is some level of sort of basic competency. I do need people that are smart and they can be sort of capable of dealing with uh, unstructured problems and so forth. So, so that's, that's there. But besides that, the curiosity that you mentioned is absolutely critical. The love of learning and, and love of inquiring about the world and learning what else is out there. I think that's that's critical motivation for doing finance or really doing anything in, meaningful in, in, in the world. Then the, the third thing is, and it kind of maybe goes with the, with the thing I said about being humble, is just being good people, right? I love working at PriceFX primarily because of that, because we, we've managed to assemble a group of people that just are good to each other, that sometimes sort of underappreciated in, in the sort of world of finance and, and money and, and all that. I'm just as capable as, as, as your next market economist to talk about economics, but there is something that the sort of classic economics doesn't capture about interaction between people. And I think that as a manager, you need to pay attention to that. Absolutely. Tom, it's been really great chatting with you. And just the final question is, is there, is, has there been any book that you've uh, particularly gone to from a leadership perspective or from a management perspective that has helped guide your, your leadership style? Yes, I think that there are two books that I would bring people's attention to. One is uh, Sapiens by Noel Harari. It's just, uh, I can't, uh, I'll have to stop myself from speaking for next half an hour about the book. I, I absolutely love it. But the, the sort of a potted version of why I think that's a great book to read is that it fits very neatly into my view that finance people need to understand sort of the broader context in how we as humans operate. And I think that the appreciation for how, what makes us human actually translates into all the evolution, including market economy and, and his notion that money is a religion that serves reading the chapter and, and you understand what he means by that. So I think that that reading something like this, which gives you sort of a broader perspective on things is, is very, very helpful and sort of closer to the practical business of, of, of managing companies. I love the book Extreme Ownership. Jocko Willing, former Navy SEAL. I eat up his, his stuff all the time. And by the way, he does have a podcast too, if people are interested. And I think that his balancing the need to be sort of part of a team, but at the same time, kind of taking individual responsibility, there is no better management principle than that. So I think I highly recommend that book. 
Brilliant. That's great, great insights and great, great recommendations. Tom, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was nice chatting with you. One last thing. If you have a question you'd like to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm to submit it. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense with custom budgets and track transactions in real time, connect accounting software to automate reporting, then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.